We've been promised a lot over the years when it comes to driverless cars. They'll eliminate traffic, prevent millions of deaths and injuries, reduce congestion, and slash carbon emissions. But where are they? Shouldn't they be here by now? I never give a predictive date. I think anyone who's giving you a predictive date probably doesn't know what they're talking about. What needs to happen before we can hand the driving over to the robots fully? That's today on Brainstorm, the podcast about how tech is reshaping our world. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Brainstorm. I'm Michal Avram. And I'm Brian O'Keefe. So, Brian, how many stories do you recall writing, editing about autonomous vehicles? And how many times have you actually ridden in one? Well, I've never ridden in one. So let's start right there. I have definitely edited plenty, assigned some, read many, many, and I'm still waiting. I'm still waiting for the car to show up and pick me up. Yeah, I actually haven't been in one either, although I see them all over the place here, you know, in Silicon Valley. I actually did a story in 2014. And for that story, I interviewed Mark Andreessen, co-founder and uh, general partner at Andreessen Horowitz. And he said that one day, 10 years out, we'll think it was total lunacy that we ever let a human behind the wheel. And I don't think we're quite there, Brian. Now, that might have been a little bit of venture capital enthusiasm, seeing the future and the reality can't quite catch up. Yeah, definitely. But just a couple of years later, in 2016, there was an interview with the then Secretary of Transportation, Anthony Fox, under Obama. And he's now the chief policy officer at Lyft. Here's what he said. I think by 2021, we will see a lot of autonomous vehicles in operation across the country. Families that will be able to walk out of their homes and call a vehicle to them, and that vehicle will take them to work or to school or to get a doctor's appointment or something like that. Over here in Brooklyn, Michal, I do not see driverless cars regularly. But, you know, this has been a long process just to get to where we are now. I mean, you really go back to the beginning of studies in robotics and artificial intelligence that have been going on for a long time. Academics have been tinkering with these technologies and imagining them. And then there was a big milestone in the early 2000s, DARPA, which is this cutting-edge technology wing of the Defense Department, which has actually driven a lot of the technology around us you know, and funded it over the years. They had a big contest in the Mojave Desert to see if anybody could build a self-driving car that would complete this course. Okay, we have a bot on its side. And none of them made it. They all crashed or caught fire. Nevertheless... The researchers persisted. And so then you suddenly have big companies, these big tech companies coming in and snatching up academic researchers and bringing them in-house and putting a lot of money into this. And yet, solving the problem of having a car driving around and reacting to things in real time is still kind of not quite solved. And it's not just the technology piece. It's also regulation. It's how cities are set up. There's just so many different things that have to kind of like, you know, fall into place. And I think, you know, one of the things that's gone on that we've seen recently is that some of these tech companies like Lyft and Uber, for example, have realized that maybe this isn't totally in their wheelhouse. No pun intended. I know you would really like that one, Brian. But we actually saw just this last May, Lyft sold its autonomous vehicle division to Toyota. Last year, Uber sold off its AV business as well. I mean, somebody's going to do it, but it's not going to be all companies, right? You have to be driven to succeed. 
That's right. That's right. <laughs> you know, they really should have pressed on the accelerator a little bit harder. Anyways, we wanted answers. Why is this so hard? Why can't I take a nap in the backseat of a car while it's driving, you know, safely? So we talked to Missy Cummings. She's a professor of electrical and computer engineering at Duke University. She says the answer is pretty simple. The technology just isn't ready for prime time. We still cannot figure out how to make cars, quote, see the world around them to be able to make the right decisions. So even though we think we have sensors that can detect things around the car, what it means to see is actually much more difficult because seeing also includes reasoning. It's not just all of this hardware that's coming together, you know, the sensors and the cameras that are involved and that need to be on these cars. There's also mapping software and all sorts of other software and machine learning here. You know, you have to teach a car how to make really complicated decisions. And they're actually the kind of decisions that are easier for humans to make in a lot of cases. Maybe I'm in Los Angeles and I decide I really want to go to Vegas for the weekend, but all the flights are sold out or it's COVID and I don't want to get on an airplane. So I uh, use my app. The car comes and picks me up. Well, that car has to then be able to develop a route to Las Vegas, which they can easily do today. And as long as the world stays the same meaning that it matches the maps, the internal maps that are inside the quote-unquote head of the car, things would be okay. But as you know, in the middle of the night is when a lot of construction crews will come out. So where this is likely to go off the rails, and this is definitely true today, is once that construction zone gets set up, then all bets are off. You're going to wake up at let's say 5 a.m. in the morning and you're only going to be like 30 miles from your house. That is because the car got stuck behind uh, Orange construction cone and it couldn't figure out what to do to get around it. That example isn't hypothetical, Michal. You can go on YouTube and see a lot of examples of driverless cars getting totally confused and totally stuck. I don't think it's going to take this turn. <laughs> we might be stuck. Go around, man. <laughs> so obviously there's plenty of kinks to work out still, but people are working hard at this. And we wanted to hear from someone who's in the trenches working on making uh, autonomous vehicles a reality. Laura Major is the co-author of the book, What to Expect When You're Expecting Robots, as well as the chief technology officer of Motional. That's a joint venture between big automaker Hyundai and Aptiv, and they're currently partnering with Lyft to deploy driverless robo-taxis in Las Vegas. Yeah, so a robo-taxi is, uh, you know, a taxi without a driver. So it has to provide all the functionality, you know, that a passenger expects from a taxi driver. So, so that includes not only, you know, understanding its environment and navigating that, but also all of the customer assistance and all of the, you know, the route information that, that we've come to expect as passengers in a taxi. Take me inside this robo-taxi testing experience in Las Vegas for a second. So if I'm in town in Vegas, having a fun weekend, which by the way, I'm never doing. And I open my Lyft app. Does it present me with a choice, you know, like regular Lyft versus robo taxi Lyft, or is it just gonna be whatever is most available? 
Exactly. You open your Lyft app and you choose today as a consumer, do you want to choose you know, an autonomous vehicle or a human driven vehicle? And then it services you just the same. Um, today, we do have safety operators in the, the front seat um, to you know, monitor. Safety operators meaning people. People. Yes. So there are yeah. people in the front seat today that monitor the autonomous operation and, and can take over if needed. It's not a validated driverless system yet. So that system is not just testing. I mean, that's in operation and has been since 2018. So the taxis that you have in operation, you have this person sitting behind the wheel who can take over if needed, sort of like a driving instructor, you know, in the student car, it sounds like. How often do they have to do that? Or what are the kinds of situations where you need a person to intervene? And how do you then take that data and adjust to it? Yeah, they don't have to very often. Um, you know, we do in order to ensure that we have safety. If there's, let's say, somebody, you know, who cuts you off very um, aggressively, um, they may take over. If there's, let's say, a drunk person on the sidewalk who's meandering on and off the road, they would take over. So they look Always out. Always a danger in Las Vegas. <laughs> That's right. So they're on the lookout for sort of, you know, unusual behavior that would require some, you know, exceptional steps to make sure that there's safe operation. What's the one biggest hurdle or milestone you need to get past to move this forward? Is it solving some part of the technology? Is it building up more data just so that the AI is more intelligent? Or is it getting buy-in from government officials more broadly? I think the buy-in will come. I think that the challenges that are still out there are technical. So it's pretty easy to solve, you know, the majority of normal driving situations. But there's a lot of, you know, these long tail problems. Just the other day, I was driving with my daughters and we saw a unicyclist, you know, driving next to us and they got a kick out of it. But if, you know, if your perception solution has never seen a unicyclist, it's going to have a really hard time predicting its behavior, understanding how to navigate around this strange object. Getting at that is it does come to, you mentioned data, but also other ways of automating and making the feedback loop, that learning loop, uh, very efficient, uh, leveraging both simulation as well as, you know, real world testing, um, but finding a way to, to kind of harness your feedback loop with the, not just a lot of data, but the right data and not only the right data, but also annotating it in the right way to, you know, maximize the amount of information contained in your data sets. So you said that you think buy-in will come. But I'm curious, from your point of view of trying to implement this technology in the real world, if you could put together a wish list or just you know really kind of convince federal, state, local government regulators and legislators, what would you need? What does our society need as in terms of support or incentives to speed this up and make it happen? And what's the case for them to do that? There are incentives around um, the impact that this technology has on our everyday lives and on our cities. With AV technology, you have the opportunity to make transportation accessible to all. Um, you have the opportunity, more people you know, would be more willing to ride in a robo-taxi rather than maybe a city bus that's catered to them, that can pick them up where they want, when they want, and drop them off exactly where they want to go. Um, so then that means we won't have cars parked all over our cities. So you can start to design cities in a different way. So there are many societal benefits. What's important is that the tech industry takes safety seriously. I think that's the one hurdle that could get in the way if it's not handled properly. So I know you're focused on robo taxis. That's your mission at Motional. 
But as somebody who has written about and looks at the wider robotic landscape, and you look at other similar you know, uses of this technology, autonomous vehicles, what about delivery vehicles or bus systems or mining operations? Where is this advancing in ways that people might not see that you know, is, is going to see widespread implementation in the near future? Yeah, certainly. Um, we are looking at what we call adjacent markets. Um, so markets that have yeah, similar need, you know, the technology uh, would enable similar capability, you know, but without much change to the technology. So our focus, our core focus on robotaxi is really driven by, uh, you know, the market opportunity. It's a big opportunity. By 2030, it could be, you know, $45 billion market alone. But we are looking at other other applications such as delivery, um, mining. And the way we think about it is we think about how could we you know, have minimal adaptation of our technology but enable a brand new use case. So when am I getting a robo-taxi here in Brooklyn? Because anything goes on the streets of Brooklyn. So I wanna know when you're gonna be able to crack that challenge. That's a great question. I don't know if my crystal ball tells me that answer, but I would say somewhere around 2025 uh, would be probably a good, a good guess. So I think we've established that fully autonomous vehicles are not mainstream yet, but that doesn't mean that our cars aren't getting smarter. And a lot of new cars have these driver assist systems now, right? So they're doing more and more of the work for us. And even just that is bringing up all of these really big and hairy regulatory questions. How does the government regulate our cars as they become computers on wheels? That's right, Michal. And guess what? We have some breaking news on this. Tell me. Earlier this week on Tuesday, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration said that automakers are going to be required to report crashes that involve driver assist systems and crashes of fully autonomous vehicles. So that's important because this is the first time that we've seen the federal government step into this space. And, uh, you know, before now, it's been left up to the states. And this indicates that, you know, the authorities on the federal level are really seeing that this is going to be a big deal, really focusing on having to take a closer look at this and track this data so that we can really understand what's happening. And one of the big questions here is liability. Rob Siemens is a professor at NYU Stern School of Business, and he says that the more and more autonomous the car becomes, the trickier the regulatory questions become. There's kind of a gray area if you think about it. For instance, like current driver assist technology that hands the car back to the driver suddenly in a dicey situation, is it the car's responsibility or the driver? So the automated system quickly hands it over to the human who then gets into the accident. Technically, the human was operating the machine at that point, uh, even though it was sort of handed over to the human at the point where the computer couldn't handle it anymore, right? So, so it feels like the computer should be, right, or the producer of the product should be somewhat liable this is really where some of the tricky stuff is going to be happening. This clearly gets into some complicated territory here, but Siemens says that the regulatory uncertainty isn't really holding the technology back. It's just more of a concern for consumers. Honestly, on the sort of technology side of things, sort of moving these products forward, it doesn't seem like this is holding things back much. At the margin, if there was clarity on this, it would probably speed things up a little bit more. Where I think it's potentially going to hold things back is uh, with consumer demand. I think, you know, there's still a whole lot of 
distrust of autonomous vehicles and sort of distrust of the situations that the vehicles can put us in. And until people have a better understanding about what they are going to be liable for or what types of situations they'll be put in, um, I think that there'll be a, a fair bit of resistance to the technology. We're not going to see more AVs on our streets if consumers don't feel comfortable riding in them, right? So winning over consumers is definitely a big part of this. And I recently talked to Jody Kelman. She's the general manager of Lyft Autonomous, and she spends a lot of her time thinking about how to make sure the public is comfortable with self-driving cars. You know, we're still in day one of deploying self-driving technology on the road. You're seeing it in limited markets. You're seeing it on sort of a specific set of routes and under certain weather conditions, but it's not everywhere at all times yet. And that's a huge part of kind of the role that Lyft plays in this is we're a hybrid network. We have human drivers, we have autonomous drivers. And so no matter where you're going, we can make sure we're getting you a ride. But the other role we play in this, I think, is really around that consumer adoption piece of the puzzle. And so when we talk to our riders about this, it turns out the single biggest thing that sort of makes someone comfortable with this type of new technology is that they've seen someone else do it. So I want to ask you to talk a little bit more about sort of the normalization of all of this. What stage do you think we're really at? I mean, I see autonomous vehicles like almost every time I'm out driving around, but that is not the case in most parts of the country or of the world. So really, where do you think we are? Because I think we're very, very early in normalization. I think if you were in the industry, the like peak of the hype cycle was somewhere around 2017, 2018, where everyone was saying these cars were going to come tomorrow. And if you were working in this industry, you were aware that it was, this is a, a really hard technical problem to solve, right? And we've always known that's meant you're going to need to deploy slowly and with a backup fleet of human drivers. Walk me through a little bit of the evolution also on how Lyft has approached this as a business, not just the technology piece, but really what the model looks like. And it's my understanding that earlier on, the plan was to own and build much more than what you're currently envisioning. So tell me a little bit about why that shifted. Yeah. So uh, first off, you know, for your listeners who, who are not following along with chapter and verse at Lyft, we've just sold our self-driving car division, which was called Level 5, to a company called Woven Planet that's a subdivision of Toyota. So you can you can kind of think of three main parts of the self-driving stack that are meaningful when you're rolling out these cars, right? You need the actual vehicle itself, then you need the self-driving system, and then you need some sort of network to deploy that vehicle in. And so we started our level five division, which really was intended to build that software layer because we didn't know what technology was going to be available on the open market. And so it really made sense for us as a transportation provider to get into the business of trying to make sure we had access to that technology. And I think as I look at this now, five years later, we're in a position where there are many credible self-driving players who are getting to market. And I actually think the great thing that you're finally starting to see is all the sort of small startups who just were building that self-driving software part of the stack you know, are now teaming up 
with auto manufacturers in order to to really be able to deploy a car on the road. So I I really like where we are as an industry right now. I think it's kind of it's the rational evolution. And then I will say as, you know, the general manager of the business that is bringing self-driving providers online, we know much more about what it means to actually deploy the best self-driving technology than we did in 2016. And I think now we we really feel like we bring that whole stack of expertise to be able to make sure our riders are getting the best possible self-driving experience when it comes to their market. Talking to all these people about the challenge of creating driverless cars and making them work really kind of makes you step back and think about what it's like to drive and the experience of it itself, doesn't it? You realize just how much goes into it. And it's not just knowing your way around and following traffic laws and, you know, all that good stuff. But there are all these unexpected things that happen. Like I remember driving on the 101 years ago and like a flock of ducks just crossed the highway. I just wonder how does a computer system react to that? And also all like the social stuff that goes along with driving, you know, like flipping each other off. What's going to happen to that, Brian? It would be a real (laughs) triumph if the scientists could get rid of road rage. But I tend to worry that it's never going to go fully away, even if there's an algorithm controlling everything. But, you know, just this whole way of thinking about driving is really like the human experience in microcosm. You know, it's just processing data, like you said, following rules. I can think of plenty of times when I was driving and I was totally on autopilot and thinking about other things because I'd driven on a certain road so many times that I didn't need to actually actively manage what I was doing. But then if there's something that pops up unexpected, like a ball rolls into the street or whatever, you have to react to that. You want to see what other people are doing around you, and you recognize somebody else is driving in a way that looks a little funny. Maybe they're going to do something unpredictable. And just trying to think about how to solve all of that, not just with data, but programming an algorithm to evaluate every possible scenario and react in a normal way is sort of mind-boggling. And, you know, for all the fun of driving, which I think there definitely is that aspect, we also do a lot of stupid things when we're driving. And, you know, we we laughed about road rage, but that's an actual issue. And then, you know, drunk driving and all of the other stuff that goes on. I mean, this is a huge issue, right? And, and it can be really dangerous. And so I think you know, the whole promise here of AVs, other than making a lot of money for a lot of companies, is that it's actually a safer alternative. So that's kind of the promise. Hopefully we actually get there someday. I'm just crossing my fingers and hope we don't stall out. Ba-dum-bum. All right. That's it for today. We'll be back next week with more talk on how tech is reshaping our world. The Brainstorm Podcast is a production of Fortune Media, Our show is written and produced by Wyatt Orm and edited by Nicole Vergala. Music is by Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds NYC. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Hey, Brian, my car has been making this funky noise. Is it like wah, 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 wah? No, it's more like... Oh, but when it does that, is there also a ka-chunk, ka-chunk, ka-chunk? No, there's like a ding, ding, ding. It might be my three-year-old in the back seat. I think that's what it is, but...